We are in the book of Genesis still. We're coming on the, the last laps, chapter 47 this morning. Um, let me encourage you that if you've missed some of Genesis to go back. It's all on YouTube or on our podcast uh, or on our website. You can catch all of these messages if you've missed any from there. And of course, the kids who want to go, they can go to kids worship over there, this direction there. And we're thankful for the trained volunteers that take care of them back there. All right. Um, our scripture reader this morning didn't make it, so it'll be me this morning. So uh, let me give you a little background before we dive into chapter 47, okay? So Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, has worked his way up the ladder to where he is now second in command in all of Egypt, which is the most powerful empire on the planet. And then God brought a famine and he's going to use this famine to drive his people down into Egypt so they can survive and so they can be fed. But the, the, the brothers keep coming to Joseph, not knowing it's him, to buy grain. And each time he gives them a test. He wants to see if they're honest. He, he gives the brother Benjamin like extra portions to see if they're still jealous. He holds Simeon back to see if they'll abandon him. They, he provides all kinds of tests and they... That you can see the sanctification going on in their life, especially in Judah, that they went from being an evil bunch of brothers to being some decent guys as a transformation is taking place. And now today, the big reunion is going to happen. The dad, Jacob, is going to finally meet his son that he thought was dead. So I'm going to read uh, just the first 21 verses. We'll cover the whole chapter, but I'm going to read for your hearing uh, verse from 1 to 21. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, um, What is your occupation? Eric, if you want to come up and join me, I'll let you finish. <laughs> Eric's our scripture reader this morning. This morning. All right, so... Um, let me read just one more, and then I'll let Eric finish here. So Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. Let me give you this mic right over here, Eric. There you go. In fact, if you'll stand right here, you can see on the screen right there. And actually, let me go. Actually, yeah, there you go. Verse 4. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days and years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in, their, in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. 
And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before, our, before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will, exchange you food. I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied, them with, he supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we, with our land, will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Eric. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. And Father, I'm thankful for a church that believes your word and trusts it. Father, we're not gathered here this morning to hear Gary's thoughts. We're here to hear from the living God. We're thankful that you revealed yourself through the inspired, uh, preserved word of God. And pray that you'd speak to our hearts this morning by it and through it. May we become more like Jesus because of what we've learned this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I grew up in the tiny little state of Delaware by the arrow. You wouldn't even be able to see it without the arrow. And uh, Delaware is 95 by 45 miles, okay? I mean, there are counties in Texas that are bigger than the state of Delaware. There are ranches, literally ranches. The King Ranch in Texas is bigger than the state of Delaware. Um, and uh, I was called to preach when I was 15. And when I graduated from high school, I went to Missouri. I'd never been to Missouri. I had not been much outside of a few states on the East Coast. And so I was traveling to this land far away, and I was traveling there with a guy that I'd never met before. I had preached at this church, and this guy wasn't there that night because he, he had to work, and he calls me up and says, hey, I heard you're going to the same Bible college I am. My mom says you preached at my church tonight. Anyway, would you like to share a ride with me out there? We'll rent a car, and we'll, we'll split the money. I'm like, sure, let's go. So I'm thankful that he was not a homicidal maniac, and we made it alive to Missouri. But it was scary to kind of travel 1,250 miles across the United States to a place I'd never been before with $500 in my pocket. And, uh, but God took care of us. And, and, and here's what happened here is with Jacob is now going to travel down to Egypt. I don't think he's been there before. This is scary. This is a place that his father and grandfather got in trouble at, in. And so he's kind of nervous about going there, but he's going to make the trip. So Genesis chapter 47, we're going to divide it into a few little sections. First of all, Joseph presents his family to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh presents Jacob land, and Joseph will feed the nation, and actually all the nations, and then Israel's fruitfulness and future. So that's how we're going to divide up this morning. Let's jump right in. 
So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess. So he's presenting to Pharaoh his family. Now, this is really an amazing situation because remember, Joseph was a slave, okay, who then ended up in prison. And now he's worked his way up to be second in command to Pharaoh. And he even said that I'm like a father to Pharaoh because Joseph's approaching 40, and Pharaoh evidently is younger or at least younger in maturity to where he listens to everything that Joseph says, which is a great thing, great characteristic in leaders. Some leaders don't listen to anybody. You ever met people like that? We see people like that all the time. Here, Pharaoh, give him credit. He's not a believer, but he, he knows wisdom when he sees it. And here he's saying, hey, I want to introduce you to my family, which was kind of amazing because these two groups of people didn't really get along. You know, remember last week we went through a little genealogy, and it was really fascinating. I didn't get, to get into it, and it actually fits better if I share it now, some little observations about the, the, the genealogy. He listed all of Jacob's wives, which he had multiple wives, which is not a good thing, okay? And he lists all of his children and his grandchildren. And if you look at the list, Leah and Zilpah, their children together equal 49. 49, we know, is a multiple of seven, right? And so... Rachel's children were 14. You see a pattern here? And uh, Bilhah's children, she had seven. And the total number of people in Jacob's family that went down in Egypt was 70. You see all the sevens there? Seven's the number of completion or perfection in the Bible. And then if you go back to Genesis chapter 10, God set forth the table of nations. He described all the nationalities that went forth out of Noah's three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And they formed 70 nations. You see that number there also. 70 is a significant number in the Bible. Moses, with Jethro's advice, appointed 70 elders over the nation. And then uh, Abraham had 70 descendants from him. 70 years, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. The Septuagint, you see Sept there, that's the, the prefix for seven. The Septuagint is named that. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, Daniel's prophecy of the future was 70 weeks of history. Of course, what did Jesus say? To forgive 70 times 7. You see the flow here of 7 and, and the 70. And then Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. How many did he send out? 70. Some translations say 72, but that's kind of a, a mix-up in the Greek there. It means 70 by twos. And when you translate it to English, it looks like it's saying 72. But I believe he sent out 70, as the more accurate, accurate translations say. Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin. And who was the Sanhedrin? It was the ruling council of 70 elders. And then, let me get here. There we go. Jacob's family, basically what this is, the 70 to go down to Egypt is a hyperlink to the table of nations. That God said, hey, here's all the, the ethnic groups of the planet, 70. I'm going to send a new humanity down through my chosen people into Egypt. And that's what they will represent. So God is preserving a remnant. We learned about the word remnant a couple weeks ago and how God always has a group of believing Jews throughout all of history. Most Jews today do not believe in Christ, but many do. And of course, in the tribulation, the remnant will, will, will increase and many Jews by the sands of the seas, the Bible says, will come to Christ and realize, wow, he was the Messiah, we missed him. The table of nations, again, this is not just Bible. This is history, and, and archaeology backs, backs this up. Ham, Shem, and Japheth, 
Noah's three sons. You can see all the descendants in the 70 nations come from that. And you can see where in the different parts of the world that they have settled and how ethnicities come from this. The table of nations in Genesis is the most comprehensive explanation of human migration more than any other document in all of ancient literature. This is not just Bible. This is, this is fact. And you can even see when you study DNA, how it, when it spreads out, this, well, this study was done by Dr. Richard P. Ashman. And you, when you discover people's genetics and their ethnicity, you can trace it back to three groups, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Evolutionists believe that ethnic diversity in the world came about by random occurrence and that some races, which I don't like the word race, how many races are there? There's only one, okay? Many times when I'm filling out government forms that ask me my race, I will check, I'll fill in human, because <laughs> that's the only race there is. There are different ethnic groups. The Bible uses the Greek word ethnos, because there's different ethnic, ethnic groups, but there's only one race, and it's human. But evolution, Darwin came up with the idea of races because he believed that some people evolved more than others. He believed that blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white people advanced the most, and that's why Hitler got his ideas from, and that blacks had evolved the least, and they were most like monkeys. That doesn't sound like something I want to believe, do you? That, that, there's only one race, and yet Darwin, in his book, The Evolution of, the, the Bio, of Biological Species, he taught this idea of, that we had different ethnic groups or races because of uh, survival of the fittest, and, and that some people had evolved more, more uh, successfully than others. So the Bible demonstrates, though, that the beautiful diversity of ethnicity are God's design. He's the one that chose our ethnicities, our eye color, our hair color, all that. And we want to put it in the little tiny groups when it's incredibly, it's a very vast spectrum. And I'm thankful that our church reflects that. It's always been part of Revolution Church that we would be diverse. We didn't want to be the all-white church or the all-Chinese church or the all-black church or the all-Korean church. We wanted to be a church that looks like heaven. Because did you know what? When, when, when you die and, and you give a new body, you will be the same ethnicity you were. Because God created that way, and that's the way we'll be for all eternity. That's why the Bible talks about that all tribes, tongues, and nations will be before Christ. We'll be singing in our own languages, but yet we'll understand one another. It'll be like Pentecost on steroids. It'll be an amazing day. And so this will always, I pray, that will always be part of the of the DNA of our church, that we would represent all tribes, tongues, and nations. Acts chapter 17, verse 25, Luke talks about this. He says, he gives himself to all mankind and life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. We all trace our DNA back to Adam and to live on all the face of the earth. He goes on to say, having determined, God is the one who determined allotted periods, that means periods of times, and boundaries, geographical boundaries of their dwelling place, that God chose where, God predetermined when you would live and where you would live. And God uses those two things. Listen to me carefully. God uses where you were born and when you were born to put you in the best optimal position to seek Him. Think about that. People will say, well, what about those who have never heard? They're exactly where God wants them to be. And that you don't know that they haven't heard, first of all, but also God knows who will hear and who won't hear, who will respond, who will not respond. And he, he did that so that you might seek him. Your purpose in being here this morning is to seek God. I know you want to see your friends. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad you have friends here. I know that sometimes we feel it's our duty to come, 
But the ultimate end of this morning is that you would seek God and that you would find him in a deeper, more personal way than ever you have before. It says that perhaps that they would feel their way toward him and find him. And listen to this, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God is close and able to be found by anybody who has a heart to seek him. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. The scroll is the title deed to the earth. Jesus comes, takes it back, and says, This earth belongs to me. He takes it out of the hands of Satan and he reclaims the earth. And he says, And by your blood, referring to Jesus' blood, you've ransomed people for God from every tribe. Every tribe. There will be people that will be saved from every ethnic group on the planet, every tribe, language, and people. And the word nation means nationality, not political kingdom. God has proven that he is in control of all of history, and he's directing the course of human events. There's nothing that happens outside of God's control. He, indeed, the word for it is sovereign. So the question is, will you trust him to control all of your life and direct your plans and your decisions. That's the wrestle. That's the rub. We want to make our choices. We say, this is my life. I will do as I please. I will do as I please with my morality, with my education, with my finances. And God's saying, I made you for a purpose. Will you fulfill that purpose or will you continue to fight with me? And so Joseph says, hey, my family has come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And the word Goshen here is a play on words because it's the same Hebrew words that spell garden, same Hebrew letters, sorry, that spell garden just kind of mixed up. And so it's a, it's a hyperlink back to Adam and Eve in the garden. I'll show you why here more in a minute. And from among his brothers, he took five men. He didn't take all of them. He only took five of them. And why five? Well, it's really interesting. In the Bible, five is, stands for grace. Five stands for grace. Grace, by definition, is unmerited favor or when God gives you what you don't deserve, when God shows loving kindness to you and gives you what you don't deserve. You look throughout all the old Bi- the Bible, you see this five reappearing. There's five primary types of offerings. There's the burnt offering, sin offering, the trespass offering, grain, and peace offering. Then you look at the tabernacle. There's five curtains, five bars, five pillars, five sockets. The altar was five cubits long, five cubits wide. The height of the court within the tabernacle was five cubits. The book of Psalms is divided into five major categories. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was given by God a dream where he saw a giant statue. This is my favorite section of scripture, by the way, in Daniel, because here's what happened. This statue, according to the interpretation, not my interpretation, but the interpretation given by eternal God to Daniel, represented five periods of world-ruling empires in the future. Daniel is given world history from his point to the end of the world, all, describes all the empires of the world. And you see right there, he, God tells him about the Babylonian Empire, which was and was about to end, the Persian Empire, the Macedonian Empire, the Roman Empire, and then how the Roman Empire would be split and go in ten different directions, signified by the ten toes of the statue. And he gives that interpretation. The Old Testament starts off with the five books of the Pentateuch. You see them listed there. The New Testament starts off with its own version of the Pentateuch, the Gospels, and also Luke continues the thought with Acts. Jesus multiplied five loaves of barley to feed how many people? 5,000. You see God's grace all over the Bible. All these situations, God 
is being gracious. The Apostle John wrote five books, all centered on the grace of God. The Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So he took five brothers. He's saying, I'm presenting to you, and this is a foretaste of Jesus presenting us to, the, to a throne, right? He said, by, God, by God's grace, I'm presenting my brothers to you before your throne. Jude one twenty four talks about this day when Jesus will present you and me to the throne. Now to him, which is talking about Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling. Let me ask you a question. Are you able to keep yourself from stumbling? No, we stumble all the time, but not ultimately. Jesus keeps us from ultimately losing your salvation. He's the one that keeps you. Because if it was up to Gary to keep my salvation, I would have lost it a long time ago. And so Jesus is the one who keeps me from stumbling, and he is going to present me, just like Joseph presented his five brothers based on grace before the throne, we're going to be presented blameless before the presence or the throne of his glory with great joy. Jesus isn't going to say, well, here's my bride, Father. I know, I know she's not much, but, you know, here she is. No, he's going to, like, he's going to be excited and say, look, Father, here's my bride. With great joy he's going to present you. And you're going to say, He's going to present me? Doesn't he know all I've done? It says blameless. Not because you are, but because it's all been wiped away by the blood of Christ. The Father will behold you as the bride of Christ in all your stunning glory, robed in white, showing purity, and he presents us before the throne. Pharaoh said to his brother, so what is your occupation? Remember that Joseph already told him. (laughs) But he's like, really? (laughs) Because Egyptians did not like shepherds. Egyptians did not like sheep. <clears throat> That's why you see all over Egyptian architecture and all, uh, all over, even in pagan things, you see goats, not sheep. It makes me wonder if we, should not, we shouldn't call our kids kids, maybe we should call them lambs. I don't know, just a thought. Of course, maybe it's because they act like they're demon-possessed, and that's why we call them kids. I don't know. But he said, what is your occupation? He said, they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds. And of course, Joseph coached them up on what to say. And it's the truth, but he said, make sure you emphasize, don't try to hide it, that, that you, you practice an, what's an abomination to Egyptians, because this is all going to work strategically so you get the best part of the land. He said, you, you are, your servants are shepherds, and we come from, our ancestors were shepherds. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there's no pasture for your servants' flocks. In other words, the famine has just decimated any pasture where we could feed these animals, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. There's that word again referring to the garden. This is the best land for herding sheep. And Pharaoh said, your father and your brothers have come to you. So let's move on to the next point there, where Pharaoh presents Jacob the land. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. So in all of Egypt, they get the very best, which God gives us the best to those who leave the choice up to him and let them settle in the land of Goshen and if you know any able men hey Joseph you haven't know any guys who are good at handling cattle <laughs> and Joseph's like yeah I might know a few guys that could do that put them in charge of all of my livestock so here and and this is really a key point because this will be fulfilled later even more so but Pharaoh has his own livestock and cattle and herds and things like that besides, you know, not sheep, but other types of animals, and he wants to put them in charge of that. So they went from just being sheep herders to being husbandry 
of all kinds of livestock. So then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. That seems backwards. In Eastern Hebrew culture or Middle Eastern culture, the superior always pronounced a blessing on the inferior. So what should have happened here is that Pharaoh should have extended his scepter and maybe touched each of his shoulders like he's seen done in the movies and pronounced a blessing on him. But Jacob says, I'm blessing you. Which is really, if you look from a human standpoint, here's the, the king of the most powerful empire on the planet. He's got all the armies. He's got all the wealth. He's got all the grain because of Joseph's plan. He has all the prestige. Everybody in the world looks up to Pharaoh. Here's jo Jacob. He's just a shepherd. And yet God says, this, is, this guy is the one I've chosen amongst all men on the planet to bring forth the Messiah. And God sees it this way. And he says, this is the superior pronouncing a blessing on the inferior. I knew a pastor years ago who became very famous across America because he was trying to get people to, to uh, be more like salt and light in America and pray to bring revival back to America. And he was interviewed on television one time and said, have you ever thought running for president? He said, no, I can't imagine stepping down from being a pastor to a lower level. He thought as being a pastor, that's the highest calling on the earth. And I, I agree with him. I think that's a wonderful place to be. And God sees things differently, doesn't he? Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And that those who would be greatest among you, let them be your servant. And so Pharaoh said to Jacob, and again, Jacob, think about this guy, all that he's been through. He's the one that tricked his brother out of the birthright, right? He's the one that tricked his brother out of the blessing. He's the one that deceived his father. He's the one that went out tricking Laban and manipulating the flocks and all that stuff. I mean, his, his name literally means trickster or heel gripper, one who trips people up. And look, look where he is. He's standing in the presence of the throne room of the most powerful place on earth. He says, how many are the days of your life? Man, dude, how old are you? <laughs> because he's, he's 130 at this point, and he looks really bad. He, he looks worn for all of his, his really rough life and all that he's been through. And Jacob said to him, this is key, the days of the years of my sojourning. Pharaoh said, how many days of your life? And he goes, he changes the word and says, sojourning. He said, I'm just passing through. And this is probably the, one of the best things that Jacob says. He realizes this earth is not his home. He's just a pilgrim traveling, and we have to see ourselves that way. Whatever your address is right now, it's temporary. <laughs> Don't get too connected to that home. I know you probably like it. Maybe many, many of you built it or you designed it, but please don't get too attached to it because Jesus says, I go to prepare a better place for you. And if I go with a better place up for you, I will come again and receive it to myself that where I am, you may be also. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And so we need to be focused on that and realize we're just passing through. The job you have right now, it's temporary. Everything you have right now is temporary. Focus on the eternal. I'm sorry, let me go back. Let me finish the verse here. So sojourning, he says 130 years, and then he says this, his years are few. Wow, 130? I, I would like to live to 130, I think. 
that would be a long, long time. Now, we know that back then people did live longer, and that's not just a biblical thing. Study Indian archaeology, Chinese archaeology, and they have records of people living this long in every culture around the planet, especially in the, in the Hebrew culture. But you see people living longer, so this was no big deal. But why would he say that 130 years is few? Because when you compare it to Isaac and Abraham, he didn't live as long, and he's not going to live as long. And he says not only are they few, but they're evil. I've had, a, I've had a rough life. Who made Jacob's life rough? Jacob did. God, God even wrestled with him and said, I'm going to have to break your hip to settle you down, boy. And he, he was always manipulating and trying. Jacob's problem, his, his idol, was control. He wanted to control people. He wanted to control events. He wanted to control all kinds of things. And God's like, I'm just going to prove to you once and for all, you're not in control. Here you are. You've left the promised land. You're standing down in Egypt, and you're standing before Pharaoh in order to be fed. You thought you were in control, but I'm showing you that I, I orchestrate the events. I've orchestrated this famine. The Bible doesn't say Satan brought the famine. It says God brought the famine. And God can use negative things. God can use this economy or whatever he wants to do to bring you to the point where you will trust in him. It says, referring to his life, the years of his life, he says, they have not attained to the days of the years of life of my fathers. So he made, right there, the reason his days were few is because he didn't live as long as, the, he knows he's, he's not dead yet, but he knows he's not going to live as long as they are. Abraham lived to 175, Isaac to 180, and so he's not going to live even close. Now, there is a chiastic structure in there, and again, I apologize for the small letters, but let me just explain what the letters mean. So in red, it talks about, the in verse 4, the famine is severe. Let me turn this way. And in verse 13, the famine is very severe. severe. So you see this poetic structure that's going on here. And as it works its way in the sandwich, he says, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers. And then Joseph talks to Pharaoh about his fathers and brothers. And the sandwich works inwardly, talking about the best of the land, in Goshen. And then in verse 11, the best of the land in Goshen, the land of Ramesses. And then it talks about he brought in his father before Pharaoh and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and they went out, coming in for a blessing, going out for a blessing. And then it says in the days of your life, and he talks about the days of his life. And in the middle of the sandwich, here's what we see that the days of the years of the sojourn 130, they're few and evil. What is the meat of the sandwich? Few and evil. What is God trying to tell you about Jacob's life? He, could, he didn't live as long as he could have because of the way he lived. He lived an evil life. He lived a very selfish life. Anything short of a life lived for God will be a life of regret. Here you are standing. You've been reunited with your son that you thought was dead. You've been invited to the White House, if you will. This should be a wonderful day. And you know what his life is focused on? Yeah, I didn't live the way I should have. And I'm not going to live as long as I could have. I, I really regret my life. I, I look back on it and I think of how many times that I was selfish. And that's what Jacob was. He wasn't just selfish every now and then. He was consistently selfish. And yet, we, this blows my mind week after week that God chose these guys. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with all their warts and flaws, and guess what? He chose you and me too. That's what God specializes in, is taking broken people with all of our baggage and glorifying himself through them and for their good. So don't be Jacob. 
I really don't want any of you, especially those of you who are on the younger half of life, to look back on your last days of your life and look back with regret. Wish I'd spent more time with my kids. Wish I hadn't blown all that money. Wish I'd been more generous. Wish I'd stayed in that marriage. I wish I hadn't given up so soon. I wish, I wish, I wish. Just regret, regret, regret. The only way, ladies and gentlemen, to avoid a life of regret is to do it God's way and not your way. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and let him direct your paths. That's how we live life, that we don't look back and say, man, I messed up. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. He, he was in a, even in his days of regret, he at least does the right thing and he blesses Pharaoh. And I'm sure Pharaoh is thinking, here's this guy who believes in what he claims is the one and true God. I have all my gods over here. I've got 10 primary gods, but I've got hundreds of others. And this guy is pronouncing a blessing on me. But there's no record that he rejected it. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and he gave them a possession. He gave them territory, he gave them land, and he gave them the best of the land. And in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses. Now, this, the, the chiastic structure tells us this is the same thing as Goshen. And some critics of the Bible say, wait a minute, if you study the, the, the pharaohs, Ramesses hasn't even re- ruled yet. How can he call it then? See, there's a mistake in the Bible. Now, it would be just like if I told you about the Delaware Indians who were gathered around Philadelphia. I'm telling you Philadelphia because that's a point that you know. But the Delaware Indians settled there before they knew what the word Philadelphia was. But because I'm writing, saying this hundreds of years afterwards, I'm giving you a, a uh, relevant point of reference that's current to our vocabulary. So he just says the land of Ramesses because later it would be called the land of Ramesses, even though Ramesses didn't exist yet. So that's not a mistake. We do, this, we do all these things all the time. Um, Caitlin was studying uh, one of her classes, a science class, was it, Caitlin? And the, the lady said that, uh, that, that people thought the world was geocentric, but which, what, which guy was it that said it was uh, heliocentric? Percur- I can't say his word. Percur- Copernicus, I keep trying to say that. Copernicus said, no, the world revolves on the sun, and she said, and the Bible was wrong because the Bible taught it geocentric. I said, Caitlin, message your teacher and say, where in the Bible does it say that? Because it doesn't say it anywhere. The problem was the Catholic Church, who believed in the Bible, went on with this thing about the, the, the earth being the center of the universe, even though it wasn't in the Bible, but the Catholic Church taught it, and therefore pe- scientists rejected what the Catholic Church was teaching, even though their teaching was wrong. Those same scientists thought the earth was flat just 100 years prior to that, and the Bible says that the God sits upon the circle of the earth and that the earth is round. So it's interesting how people will blame things. And then all you have to do is study history and realize we do this all the time. Um, other people criticize the Bible for saying the sun rises and the sun sets. Uh, look at your smartphone. It still says sunrise at 635 and sunset at 847. It still uses those words. We use words all the time. So don't condemn the Bible for the same thing that the weatherman does every day. So we, we, anyway, I'll move on. <laughs> Joseph feeds the nation, okay? Um, and Joseph provided. So now it's the one Joseph's providing all this. And again, all this goes back to Joseph interpreting dreams. Think about this. Joseph's gift was interpreting dreams. He used his gift 
not for his own benefit, but to serve others. And that's exactly what you should do. The whole world is changing right now in this story. The whole world is being fed right now because one man unselfishly used his gift to bless others. What is your gift? What is your ability? What's your talent that God has given you? Are you using it unselfishly for the glory of God? So he provided all this, and that's how he's able to do this for his fathers, his brothers, and his father's household. So now Joseph's doing all this, and who's Joseph a picture of? Jesus, and Jesus is providing for his brothers and for his family. Hold on to that thought, because we'll come back to that. Now, therefore, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished. I mean, the, 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 the land itself is struggling, because it's dying. And Joseph gathered up all the money. So now everybody's buying all this grain, and he's already... Uh, sold everything that people can have. I mean, he has, he's taken all the money that people can buy, and in exchange for the grain they bought, so they've already spent everything. And then he goes on and says, when the money was all spent in the land, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? A rhetorical question here. You know, Don't let us die, please. We're out of money, but you have grain, for our money is gone. And Joseph answered, said, give your livestock. So now you still have animals, but you have no grain. Let's trade livestock. Instead of cash, let's trade livestock for this grain and exchange your livestock if, you're, if your money or since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them uh, food in exchange for their horses, flocks, and herds. So you got goats, you got sheep, you got whatever they have, cattle, all horses, everything, even including donkeys. And he supplied them with all food in exchange for all their livestock that year. So this is an interesting situation. Who is in charge of all of Pharaoh's livestock now? Remember a few verses ago? If you know anybody who's good at livestock, put them in charge. And now guess what? Time passes. The, number of, the amount of livestock went from just Pharaoh's livestock to, the na- to all the nations. So the brothers are in charge of all animals in the land of Egypt. So there, you see the promotion happening here. God's using a famine to promote these guys, just like God used dire circumstances to promote Joseph. So when that year was ended, they came to him following the year and said to him, we will not hide from your Lord. Lord, it, 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 we're being transparent with you. That our money is all spent. You know that. The herds and livestock, they all belong to you. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. So here's what Joseph does. He says, they, they say, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our, our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be the servants of Pharaoh. Think about this. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Joseph went, when he was a boy, 17, he went to his brothers. His brothers rejected him. They tried to kill him. They threw him in a pit. His father thought he was dead, but then he was found later to be alive. He goes to prison, okay? And then when his brothers come to him during the famine for food, they don't recognize him still. But then during seven years of famine, they recognize that, oh, he is our brother. He is, they knew he was alive, but they didn't know this guy was him. And so he brings them into his land and provides for them. You see how this is the prophecy being fulfilled? Jesus came to earth, who, who he came to his own, his own received him not. He came to Jewish people, the Jews rejected him and crucified him. 
They cast him in a pit for three days. He rose again. They did not accept him as Messiah. They didn't recognize him. And in the future, when God brings seven years of tribulation, which are in our future, I believe in our near future, guess what? Jews will recognize, oh, wow, it is Jesus. He was the Messiah, and Jews will come to Christ by the thousands, if not the millions. And then what will he do? He'll bring them into his land, the place that he's prepared for us, and he will provide everything for us. So Joseph, I believe that this is a picture of the millennium, where we are all brought into God's land, Jesus came to earth, Egypt's a picture of the earth, of the world, Jesus comes into the world and makes it the, the best place on planet earth to be, he provides everything for us, and he does that for a thousand years. This is Labor Day weekend, and it's ironic that this chapter is talking about, hey, we will enter into a labor contract with you, we will be your servants, your slaves, if you will feed us, and this is good and bad. This all works out really good because Joseph's a good guy. Okay, he lets them buy, he does all this exchange, he's going to let them work, and he's going to give them, he's not going to withhold grain, because Proverbs talks about a wicked person withholds grain, he's going to give out the grain, he's really good, and all the power is, under, is in his hands, and it only works because he is good. Put all that same power in an evil person's hands, and it becomes bad, it becomes ruthless. That's how we get... That's why the, the, the old political statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so that's why people can't handle dictatorships. They can't handle where all the power is centralized under one person or under one type of government because people are corrupt. And so you see even just south of us in Cuba where people are starving, in North Korea where people are starving because what? All the power is in one person's hands and that one person is in Joseph. And that one person is definitely not Jesus. So guess what? People starve. But here, a good person is in charge. Some people would point to this and say, well, is this socialism? In a way, but it's socialism under someone who is good. And that's why socialism doesn't work on this planet, because no one is good. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so that's why, in my opinion, capitalism and democracy apply checks and balances to keep so that the power is distributed. When it gets centralized, that's when people get in a bad situation. For example, the vineyard owner. Remember Jesus told this story? This guy owned a vineyard. It was time to harvest. So he goes out at 6 a.m. and he hires day laborers and says, hey, go into my field and harvest all day long, sunrise and sunset, and I will give you a denarius, which is one day's wage. That was the going rate. they like, great. That's why we're standing here in the common market. We're waiting for someone to pick us up. We're day laborers. And so they go out in the field. But he's looking at the field, and man, at the rate we're going, this is not enough. He goes back at 9 a.m., hires more guys. Guess what he offers to pay them? A denarius, even though they're starting three hours later. Okay? Then he goes back at noon, back at 3, and then back at 6, and he hires guys at 6 p.m. for one hour of daylight, and guess what he agrees with them to pay them? A denarius. It's what's called supply and demand. <laughs> it's all right there in that passage. And then... He starts paying people, but he starts with the last first. And the guys who only worked one hour, he gave them a day's wage. And the guys who started at 6 a.m. are going, hey, man, look at that. We're probably going to get a ton of money, way more than we thought. But then he goes to the guys who came at 3 p.m., a day's wage. Like, what? Wait a minute. Noon, a day's wage. 9 a.m., day's wage. 6 a.m., a day's wage. Wait a minute. You're telling me the guy who only worked one hour gets the same amount that we do? And he's like, that's supply and demand. I was desperate. And so you try to order anything at the last minute and see if they don't charge you more for it, right? That's just the way it works. If you're running out of things, you only have one of something, 
if I have a Hank Aaron rookie card, there's only one of them on the planet, I'm going to charge you a whole lot more for this card than I am Alex Bregman's card. Okay, it's called supply and demand. It's the way it works, and that's the, that's the free market. And, here's, and Jesus even says it this way. He says, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? The answer to that question is yes. If, if you want to sell your car, you have a right to sell it for whatever you want to sell it for. If you ask $50,000 for a $20,000 car, nobody's going to buy it. That's the market. You're going to negotiate with something. And a long, long time ago in a previous life, I sold cars. And it was funny because one time I'd sell the exact same car to one person at one amount and the exact same car to another person at a different amount. It's because one person negotiates better than the other. And that's just the way it is. And, and then when we got down to where that was one of the last cars we had on the lot like that, guess what? I'm not selling it. I'm not discounting that car at all because that's car, someone wants that car. Supply and demand. And so this is what you see here that Jesus clearly teaches that you have a right to do with what you want that belongs to you because ultimately it belongs to God. He said, or do you begrudge my generosity? Think about that. The very fact that I hired you and paid you is generous. And, that, and you should be thankful for employers who to work. If you don't, and here's the great thing about America with Labor Day. You have the right to take your skills, your God-given skills and ability, and take them wherever you want to the highest bidder. In other countries, you can't do that. It's like, no, you will work here, and you can't take it. And so many of you, you've done that. You've gone from a good job to a better job because you worked hard, you busted your tail, and people recognized it, and some people, somebody recruited you over here and offered you more money to come work for them. That, that's what the Bible clearly teaches. So here, they, he asked them to give us seed. The people say, give us seed, then we may live. In other words, let's see if we can try planting. Since we're, we got Goshen, we got all this green area, we didn't have any in the land of Canaan, and then that the land may not no longer be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. And here's another reason this will turn sour. This, this uh, government takeover of everything, and again, they didn't forcefully take it, it was negotiated. It turned south because as soon as Pharaoh, as soon as Joseph's out of the picture, guess what? All these contract laborers become slaves. And, that, and then Egypt goes south and starts brutalizing people. So again, it only lasted as long as there was a good person in charge. So Pharaoh, all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe and the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to another. So everybody became a government employee. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. It's interesting because this would later be a foretaste of the Levites, how they weren't given a land, but they, everything, uh, they lived off the other people and they didn't have a fixed land. Uh, and, he, and they lived on an allowance that Pharaoh gave them. So he didn't touch that. He gave them that religious exemption because he's working under Pharaoh here. And therefore, they didn't sell their land. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Again, G Joseph's a picture of who? Jesus. Jesus will be... So some people ask me, So Gary, what do you think is the best form of government? And I would agree with Benjamin Franklin. He said that uh, a democratic republic is the worst form of government on the planet until you compare it to every other form of government. In other words, they're all bad. So the best form of government is a benevolent dictator where the benevolent dictator is Jesus. And that's what we're going to live under for a thousand years in the future. And so J Joseph, being a picture of Jesus, says, I have bought you. Jesus has paid for us with his blood, right? And, uh, and the land. And he said, now here is seed for you and you shall sow into the land. So let's try to start planting here. And the harvest you shall give a fifth. So remember, 10% was the standard. He had doubled it during the famine. And so two, and it, but here he says, four-fifths shall be your own. You get to live off 80%. You'll pay 20% to me, 
which that would be a great flat tax, but he says 80% you can do what you want with. So this is not true uh, socialism or communism. He, they don't, where government's in charge of all of it. You got 80% you can live off when you can do what you want. He says, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. See, this is mutually beneficial. They are agreeing to this, but again, it'll backfire because once Joseph gets off the scene. We will be servants of Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and he stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Um, so now, we've, Joseph presented his family, Pharaoh gives them the land, Joseph feeds the nations, and now we come to our last point, Israel, Jacob's fruitfulness and future. So thus Israel, or Jacob, settled in land, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied. What did God tell Adam and Eve in the garden? Be fruitful and multiply. But they failed. So here is God's people being placed in the garden again by God in his sovereignty, being told to be fruitful and multiply. And Jacob lived in the land of 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. Now, he hasn't died yet, but it's, it's giving you a spoiler alert that he's going to, that's when he's going to die. So let me ask you a question. How old was Joseph when Jacob last saw him before he was sold into slavery? How old was he? 17. Okay. And so let me ask you this question. How old... So Jacob had his son, his favorite son for 17 years. Then he went a long time without him. And now how many years will he have him here at the end? 17. Do you see the chaotic structure there? His whole life is a chaotic structure. So Jacob's life was bookended by these 17 years with his favorite son and then the last 17 years with his favorite son. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph. How many sons does he have? He's got 12 and two favorite sons, Joseph and Benjamin. But he's got all these other sons. He doesn't call Benjamin. He doesn't call Reuben, the oldest. He doesn't call Judas, the biggest, Judah, the biggest leader. He doesn't call Simeon for sure. He only calls his favorite. Again, he's kind of backsliding here, I think. And he says, if I have found favor in your sight. That's weird. Why is he like, almost like begging for mercy with his son? I think he like, feels like he's failed his son. He said, then put your hand under my thigh, which was an old ancient way of making a, a sincere pinky promise, if you will, and to deal kindly and truly with me. Why is he asking Joseph, be honest with me. Why, make sure you're nice to me. Would you please do this favor for me? Because Jacob is used to tricking everybody, and he thought, I'm fixing to be tricked. People who are dishonest think everybody else is dishonest. Liars think everybody is lying. Cheaters think everybody is cheating. It's interesting that it's like Romans says that the thing you accuse others, you're doing the same thing. He says, just don't bury me in Egypt. That's his big wish. Because they, they um, in the Bible, you see people respected the body more than other cultures did. What did other cultures do at this time and even today? They burnt the bodies, okay? But they wanted to bury the bodies. They respected the bodies. He said, and I want my bones to be put back there where Abraham and Sarah are buried and where Isaac is buried. That's where I want to be. And they, did, they wanted to be back in the promised land. That doesn't mean that creation, cremation is necessarily wrong for everybody. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the only economic way and it's necessary. But there's no verse in the Bible that says you should bury and you shouldn't cremate. There is an overall tendency to, to be in those two different directions. 
He said, but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the burying place, in their burying place. Remember, Abraham bought that cave for him and his wife to be buried in, Sarah first. He said, and this is interesting. Follow the dynamics of this conversation. Joseph says, I'll, I'll do as you said. Is there any reason to doubt Joseph? He's been the upstanding guy in this whole story, nearly perfect, if you will. And Jacob's been the scoundrel this whole story. And Jacob's like, are you sure? Can I trust you to do this? Will you keep your promise? You know, swear to me, swear to me. And, and he goes on. He says, I'll, I'll do what you say. He said, no, no, I need you to swear. And he said, and he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This doesn't mean he died. The word bowed here means he worshiped. He thanked the Lord that, ah, okay, I don't have to stay here. I'll be buried somewhere else. It's interesting, Jacob's paranoia is spelled out here in Solomon, uh, Proverbs 28, verse 1. It says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. You know, you, you say, hey, what are you doing? And like, what, what, am I doing something wrong? And they go get all nervous. Like, no, I'm just wondering what you're doing over there. And you know, people who are guilty and have a guilty conscience, they think everybody's out to get them, or, or, and they're running from situations when no one's even chasing them. But the other half of the verse says, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. A guilty conscience distorts our thinking. Jacob's thinking is distorted here. He's like, no, Joseph, promise me. Are you really going to deal truly with me honestly? He's talking to the most honest guy on the planet that God has clearly been using, but he doesn't trust him. A guilty conscience distorts our thinking. A clear conscience provides confidence. That's all the more reason to live right. It just makes you bold as a lion, as Solomon said. You see, this is a beautiful picture. Joseph being like Jesus. He brings his people in. He provides everything. And the greatest thing that Jesus provides is salvation. Christ also suffered once for our sins. Joseph suffered, right? All of this suffering saved the lives of millions. Jesus' suffering saves the lives of millions. Saved the eternity, the souls of millions. The righteous for the unrighteous, that, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Have you ever trusted Christ to save you? He is your Joseph. He's the greater Joseph. You're spiritually hungry. He's the one that can fulfill that. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you, you confess, yes, I make Jesus the boss of my life, and I believe in my heart that God raised the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, what an amazing story we see in Joseph and how you orchestrated history how you orchestrated all the groups of people all over the planet for every place and time that you put them exactly where a place they could to seek you. And Father, if there's someone here this morning that is seeking you because you've put them in this time and place, I pray that they would not walk away, but they would fully put their faith and trust in Jesus, the one who died for all their sins, the one who was buried, and the one who truly is risen again. Lord, archaeologists have searched and they have still never found the bones of Jesus. Thousands of witnesses professed him, and even died for him, for the risen, resurrected Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would, uh, we pray for those who have never made that decision, that today would be their day of salvation, and they would not put it off. We thank you for Christ, and it's his name we pray. Amen. If you uh, if you've still need more information on how to become a Christian, there's my phone number. Call me or text me. I'd love to take you out to lunch and talk to you more about the gospel. So, Amanda, would you help me with question and answer? We're going to do that time that right now. So if you have a question, you can text it in. I think there's some already here. Here, looks like somebody watching online. Oh, sure. And we don't read the names of whoever, so if you want to send a question anonymously, you can. Hey, Mr. Milborn, I have a question. Not for the...
question and answer because I'm not there. <laughs> but in John 4, when Jesus is meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, the verse says it was about noon. But in the ESV version, it says the sixth hour. How do these mean the same thing? They definitely do because which gospel did he say it was in? So, go ahead. John 4. John, okay. So John is giving you Roman time, and, and then the other Gospels will give you uh, Jewish time. So we, our time is mixed up. Why does the day start at midnight? We're all asleep. But that's how we do it. And, why do it, and then what is no, noon makes some sense, middle meal, I guess, I don't know. But in the Roman calendar, the first hour was when the sun came up. That makes sense. So the sixth hour, 6 a.m., six hours is noon. So that's why there's no contradiction there. One is going by Roman time, one's going by Jewish time. But I, he said, don't, don't, don't Q&A, but sorry, we did it anyway. So. <laughs> hey, Gary, with the be fruitful and multiply thing, how does this apply to people with infertility issues? That's great. So everything that God gives us in the physical realm is a picture of what we're supposed to be doing spiritually. Okay? Your marriage, according to Ephesians 5, isn't about you and your wife. It's about Christ and the church. Okay, so can an infertile person be physically fruitful and multiply? No, they cannot. But what is the significance of being fruitful and multiplying? It's to have spiritual children. So every time you share the gospel with someone and they come to Christ, they are your child in the Lord. That's why Paul talked about you are my children in the Lord and that Timothy was his son in the Lord. He wasn't his physical son. He was his spiritual son. So having children is a picture of us spreading the gospel, so spreading eternal life to those who don't know and are spiritually dead. I think that's it. Okay, any other questions? Anybody want to raise their hand and ask? Emmanuel. Exactly, exactly. And every time that you adopt a child or take an orphan in your home, it's not just that physical thing that's happening. It's a picture of what God has done for us, that we are adopted by his spirit and that we were orphans. Even though you can have physical parents, if you don't know Christ as your savior, you're, you're an orphan. You're without your spiritual father. So that's great. All right, let's stand.